Having finished the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Colossians, we come to chapter 2 in which Paul begins transitioning into some of the specific reasons, the specific purposes for his writing, namely the threat to this particular church body of false teaching. Now, I'll say that as we just spring that thought on you, this church dealt with, the church in Colossae, a very specific error, but every church is constantly at risk of false teaching. It's simply the way that the world is. You read through all of these epistles that Paul wrote, and you think about the strength of the church in a day when they had the apostles present. You had James, you had uh, James the Lesser, you had John, you had Peter, you have Paul, you have all of these various men who can speak to the church under divine inspiration at times. As they wrote these epistles, they write under divine inspiration. The Holy Spirit's literally telling them what to write. And the church then was at risk of false teaching. If the church then was at risk, and how do you know the church was? Well, Corinthians, they dealt with a non-resurrection doctrine. Galatians dealt with Judaizers. Here in Colossians, we'll talk about the risk to them. There are a plethora of different false notions that the churches of that era were dealing with in a day when they had the apostles. Don't you know in our day that false teaching is a threat to the church without the apostles? We have their words, but we don't have them to go ask, what about this particular doctrine? You see, you could go ask an apostle in that day, and whatever answer Whatever question you had, there was an answer that would have been exactly what God would have had you to know. And so Paul writes to this church at Colossae. He writes to the Colossians, and here in chapter 2, he begins to move past the foundation work he laid in chapter 1 and begin dealing specifically with the problems that they were facing. Now, as far as the specifics of the doctrines that threatened them, this particular congregation, we'll look at that in a future message. But today we want to deal with his introduction of the beguiling that some might have, the effect of beguiling that some might have to this particular church body, and what that stood to take away from them. In other words, what they stood to lose because of false teaching. Now, let me just say up front that we understand what the Bible teaches. And so, unlike a lot of people in the world, let me just be very, very clear to those here and those who are online. False teaching cannot take you away from your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to praise God for that because there's a lot of it in the world. There are many factions of Christianity, some very popular factions of Christianity today that teach that heresy... Though it is divisive, the word heresy in charismatic means schismatic and schism and division, that teach that heresy, these popular factions, actually can take you away from Christ in such a sense as you fall away and you apostatize. If you believe a heresy, you know you don't belong to him, and some will say you cease to belong to him. Some will say you never really belong to him if you could fall for a heresy, but I just remind anyone and everyone, anytime this is discussed, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, the Lord knoweth them that are His. The context of that statement in 2 Timothy chapter 2 was heresy. You had these two men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, 
They taught heresy that the resurrection was past already, and through that heresy they did what? They overthrew the faith of some. And following that statement, Paul says, nevertheless, now what does nevertheless mean despite that? The foundation of God stands sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. Now, whatever idea you're talking about in the world, please understand that the ideas that are false, that men may hold to, are not as strong as the Lord's redemptive work. Wouldn't that be sad if heresy could take a child of God from their Savior? Heresy isn't stronger than Jesus. Jesus is stronger than heresy. And when a child of God falls into false teaching, and none of us are 100% right on everything. Now, there are some people that like to think they are. And sometimes we all think that we are. But none of us, I hate to break it to you, are 100% right at 100% of the time, unless we're talking about my wife, but don't tell her otherwise. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I saw this thing the other day. It was actually this morning. It was a meme, and it said, a wise man once said to his wife, and then at the bottom it said nothing because he was a wise man. So anyway, you husbands, your wife is always right. But wake you up with a little bit of, little bit of a, a tease this morning, uh, except for Rachel, who's given me the look, so I better move on. None of us are 100% right at 100% of the time. We're just simply not. But false teaching, though it be terrible, though it be grievous, though it be an assault of Satan upon God's people, heresy cannot take God's children from him. And so when you hear that coming from popular teachers, just understand on that point, guess who's wrong? They're wrong. Does that make them guilty of heresy? By their teaching, would that threaten their eternal state? Aren't you glad to know the truth of grace that none can pluck God's children out of his hand? And that, as Jesus said in John six thirty seven, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Whatever you believe about anything in the Bible, let that be your foundation that you go at everything with to approach it and understand it. None can be taken from the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a successful, victorious, triumphant Savior. Amen. And so none of that is, is on the outline and none of it I intended to say. But as we introduce it, I just want you to understand, as grievous as false teaching is, Christ is stronger than false teaching. Christ cannot lose His children, those that belong to Him through false teaching. The foundation of God stands sure, having this seal, the Lord knows them that are His. Now, lest we get rocked to sleep in a cradle of grace, the next statement says, "...and let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity." So if you name the name of Christ, depart from iniquity, leave iniquity, depart from the false teaching, but before that statement, the foundation of Christ stands sure. In other words, there's nothing that can upset the agenda of Christ in saving His people from their sins. The Lord Jesus Christ is a successful Savior. Now the groundwork that we've considered prior to the passages that we're going to read in just a moment and consider today dealt strongly with the identity of Christ as Creator and also Savior. And I hope that that's been very clear as we've studied through this. Colossians 1 contains some of the most weighty, powerful language in Scripture concerning the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that identity is that of deity... He is the Creator. As Creator, He is Lord. As Lord, He is Jehovah, because 
Lord is the word they supplemented for Jehovah in the Old Testament when they would read passages, and it translates Lord, even though it's the Tetragrammaton, Jehovah. Christ is Creator, is Lord, is Jehovah. And Christ is Savior. Through the offering of Christ upon the cross, His people have redemption. They are saved. Salvation is finished. It is final. It is not something that is up in the air. It is not something that could be discussed in such terms as if it could be a reality or could not be a reality. Salvation through Christ is finished. Now, we all have to have the vital phase of salvation. The Holy Spirit has to come into our hearts. We have to be quickened. But please understand, salvation is non-negotiable for the elect of God. If there's anything that the Bible teaches with great certainty, it's that Christ has finished the work of salvation for His people. And the Bible presents many things in great certainty. And Colossians chapter 1 focuses on this. We have concepts such as translation and redemption written off so powerfully in Colossians chapter 1. And again, this is all for the purpose of establishing the groundwork of the identity of Christ. Because as we come into the errors that threaten this church, some of the errors have to do with His identity, and some of the errors have to do with worshiping things other than Christ. Well, if Christ is the Creator, and He created all things in the beginning of time, then He's God, and if Christ is God, and God alone is to be worshipped, then we ought to worship Christ. Does that make sense? Then anyone who attempts to get you to worship anyone or anything other than Christ is attempting to get you to commit what? Idolatry. And so this church's identity was being threatened by a form of idolatry that is angel worship. A diminished Christ, an exalted form of angelic being in power, and they begin to worship these angels instead of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, in the previous chapter, Paul would reference something that, or explain something that he references in this chapter, and we won't say a whole lot about it because we spent a little time on it last week. The mystery that is now revealed in our day that God has a people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue who are blessed with the same covenant blessings as the seed of Jacob. The mystery hid from the foundation of the world that Gentiles should be fellow heirs, the middle wall of partition being broken down between us, you and I having the privilege of drawing just as close to God in worship as someone who's a national or an ethnic Israelite. In fact, the blessings that we have today in the New Testament are greater, infinitely greater, than the blessings that they had as Jews in the Old Testament. And this is a mystery that's hid from the foundation of the world. But the way to summarize that, in my mind, we simply say that it was a mystery from the foundation of the world that God has a people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. How many times have you heard those three words, nation, kindred, and tongue, from this pulpit over the past 15 years? Nation, kindred, tongue. Where do you get that from? I get it from Revelation 5. From Revelation 7 and verse 9, that Christ has an innumerable host of people. His elect are an innumerable group of people out of every nation, out of every kindred, 
and out of every tongue. Last week, we noticed from Genesis chapter 12 that the promise to Abraham was such that through him, specifically his seed, would all families of the earth be blessed. Not merely all nations. A nation is is great. That out of all the 150-something nations in the world at any given time, and it fluctuates up and down because, you know, in some parts of the world, they're always toppling and merging and splitting. I mean, the world is just full of wars and rumors of wars. But not merely that in every nation there are people who belong to Christ. That's good enough, right? That's great news. Including North Korea or Iran or the USSR back when I was a little kid when communism had outlawed Christianity. But in every kindred, every kindred there are people who belong to the Lord. Someone wants to find that as a grandfather group. I I don't know how far we take kindred. I don't know the full scope of God's intent on that, but I know out of every family in this world, there are people who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look around in our congregation, you get a little bit of a glimpse into the scope of that because how many people in your family love the Lord? Well, you look at them and you say, well, they love the Lord because He chose them, He redeemed them, He regenerated them. Why would it be any different in your family than other families? Now, I'm not trying to present any sort of quasi-universalism to you today because there is a hell and it will have lots of people there. But I do know that God chose people and saved them out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. And our theology, whatever we believe about salvation, has to incorporate that or it's not correct. And so in the entire globe, out of every family, there are people that are redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a mystery. It's a mystery to a lot of Christians today. Isn't that a shame when it was revealed two millennia ago? And yet, I trust that we understand it. I trust that we rejoice in it. I trust that it's not old news to us, but that it excites us. Now, if you you think, well, then why, why go preach? If God has people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue, they're going to be with Him anyway. Listen, that gives me the motivation to preach. I can go anywhere in this world and know that if I labor with God's blessing, there will be people who will be converted to the truth because they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. That doctrine does not stifle evangelism. It fuels it. There are people that will respond to the message because the Lord Jesus Christ has people where? Everywhere. And so it invigorates us to go and to preach the Word of God. Sometimes I wonder why I write notes because... None of that's on it as well. Maybe I should just throw them out and, and, and go, with, go with what comes to mind, right? Follow the Spirit, preacher. Let's read verses 1 through 5, though we'll focus primarily on the first four verses. 5 ties it into the things that we're going to say next week, however. Colossians 2, verses 1 through 5, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you, As we introduced the message and we titled it, do you remember the title, Paul's Burden for Colossae? For I would that you knew how, what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Heresy, by the way, can be very enticing, especially when it's popular in your area. I was thinking this past week, Pauls, I was thinking this past week about how the lovers of the truth at any given time, the truth of grace, have been such a minority in church history. Error is beguiling. It tricks you. It's appealing. You look at it and it's like a shiny thing that you just have to have. How few Christians today understand the mystery that we just referenced, that Christ has a people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue, and their salvation is secure. Well, very few. Very few. Don't be surprised, child of God, when you are in the minority for what you believe about grace. But don't let that fact cause you shame or fear. Now, we always want to self-examine from the Word of God, because if the Word of God says it and we don't believe it, then we're wrong. If the Word of God says it, it's true. But when you look out at the Christian landscape today and you find what you believe in a small minority, just understand that through the dark ages, those that believe the truth were a minority. So many times in church history, those that believe the truth are in a minority. There have been times in American history when what we believe, many things that we believe, were actually the majority. There were times in American Christian history when there were more primitive Baptist churches in some states than other types of churches. But just because we're the minority, don't think for a second that what you believe is any less true. If no one believed it and it was true, it's still true. If no one believes the truth, and that will never happen because God won't leave himself without a witness. You might be like Elijah, the prophet driven away, being fed by ravens, drinking from a brook in the middle of a drought, going to live with the widow that God continually refills the grain so that they don't starve to death in the middle of a period of years of drought because of the sin of Ahab and Jezebel. You might be sitting on the side of a hill inside a cave murmuring that you're the only one left. And by the way, there were 7,000 that hadn't bowed the knee. But God will not leave himself without a witness. You won't be alone. But when you find yourself feeling alone, understand that even if it's a minority, if the Word of God says it, it's right and it's true. The truth is not determined by a majority vote. Praise God for that. Think about some of the things that most every American believes today. And sometimes we kind of teeter on the 50-50, but listen, those in the 50% that are on our side, you know, if you're conservative of the political aisle, most of what they believe isn't biblical. Go ask them how old the earth is. I guarantee you, you're not going to get creationism because most of them believe in evolution. How many times do you hear from your beloved so-called conservative pundits the word evolved and evolution and millions of years and blah, 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 blah? They don't agree with you. They don't agree with you on creation. They don't agree with you on salvation. You start looking at that objectively and you realize, I don't belong with those people either. But the truth is not decided by a majority vote. The truth is the truth because it's decided by God Almighty. And if the entire world leaves the truth of what God says, it doesn't make it any less true because God is true. And what do we read in Romans chapter 3? Let God be true and every man a liar. And by the way, this is kind of funny, and maybe I shouldn't say it, but since I already started, I guess I have to. Do you know what the initials of let God be true are? LGBT. Anyway, let God be true and every man a liar if nobody believes it. God is right. God is true. 
Let's finish reading. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. We'll go through this verse by verse. And one of the thoughts that I had this morning and last night as I was preparing, shifting gears from the two messages that I tried to deliver yesterday to the next message, because when you preach and you have several messages in a row, it's it's like shifting gears, you know. You go from this gear to that gear to that gear, and you're reframing your mind as quickly and intently as you can to focus on the next thought that you want to share with the congregation, whether here or somewhere else. I was thinking about how you might read over these passages and think, you know, these are kind of filler verses that you just kind of read and move on to the more and more weighty things, which, as you, as you see in verses 6 and 7, as you've received the Lord, walk in Him, rooted and built up in, in Him, established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. By the way, I didn't plan for that to be next week's message, but I think it's really cool. Sometimes I think that the timetables of these messages are divinely orchestrated. Thanksgiving, as we'll be looking forward to observing that together next week. You might think that what we read just a moment ago, maybe, maybe you just read it and you move on to some of the major concepts. But I think as we come to the, the end of today's message, you'll see how important and relevant some of these little words that we simply read over are, some of the depth of what he says is, and how important it is to expound Scripture and to go verse by verse by verse through what God inspired these men to write. For I would that you knew, verse 1, what great conflict... I have for you. Paul's conflict has reference to his concern over their soundness. Now, we might use the word today, burden. I was very burdened with that. When I tell you that I have a burden for something or for someone, a pastor has a burden for his church and a burden for his area, immediately to your mind, images of, I hope, Mental anguish and distress are present. I, I don't know if you... <laughs> Pastor, you know, what is it that you feel about the congregation that you serve? Mental anguish and distress. Well, let me be a little more clear about what I mean by that. I am always concerned about you, about every one of you. Whether you're a member here or attend here or you watch online or you're thinking about attending here, when I learn that you are an extension of this plant that we call Flint River Primitive Baptist Church, I'm concerned for you. I worry about you. I pray for you. If I get some spider sense that, and I hope most of you get that reference, some spider sense that something might be wrong. You didn't say anything. You didn't do anything. But for some reason, I worry. I worry about it. And... It really is a burden where you, you think about them and it drives you to pray for them. And so I'll think about them and I'll be like, wow, I'm worried about them and I don't even know why, so I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray. We use the word burden to describe that sort of wrestling of mind and heart and, and gut from time to time. But Paul, here his word is translated conflict. Conflict, And I think that's a great word to describe, obviously, what sort of mental endeavors we pursue as we have a burden for a church or a group of people or a person. It is conflict. Paul has conflict. And as we know, conflict 
is a word that is used to convey trouble. If, if you say, you know, this husband and wife have a lot of conflict, do you interpret that statement as, well, they really have a good time at home? <laughs> well, they're in what? Conflict. There's trouble. There's, there's some division. There's some combating. There's iron sharpening iron. There's swords bouncing off of each other. I mean, whatever sort of metaphor or picture you want to use for it, when there is conflict, there's trouble. Paul has conflict in his heart for the churches of Colossae and also for them at Laodicea. Why? Because they are being threatened with error, and this is deeply troubling to the Apostle Paul. Now again, the same writer, the Apostle Paul, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. Paul says, if they belong to the Lord, the foundation of God is sure because God knows them that are His. Even when we don't, the Lord knows them that are His. But just because it doesn't take them from God and cause them to spend eternity in hell, it doesn't trouble Paul any less. Sometimes people say that, well, if heresy doesn't send people to hell, why are you so worried about it? Why does that always have to be the thing that we're concerned with? I mean, when your kids run across the street and you know they love the Lord Jesus and they're playing in traffic, do you, do you think, oh, no, they're going to die and go to hell? No, you're thinking, I don't want them to get hit by a car. It's not always about dying and going to hell. There are troubles that we can experience in the world that detract from God's glory and uproot, overturn the faith of God's people and destroy churches and Paul is concerned with that, and we're concerned with that. It's a conflict he has for them of soul, for them at Laodicea, and as many as have not seen him in the flesh. He has this concern for all churches. He's conflicted. He has a conflict of soul. He is burdened for their soundness in faith, for their maturity, for their love of Christ, Paul wants churches to be sound. Now, as we begin to look at the why, because we won't go into the error today, we'll go into the stakes. What is it that you stand at risk of losing? What's the damage of false teaching? I think as we do that, we'll see why he is so burdened, but Paul is burdened. Now, by the way, this statement, and as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, indicates to us that Paul had never visited the church of the Colossians. He'd never been here. It's believed, as we said in the introductory message, that perhaps this church here was established through a, an arm, an evangelistic outreach from the church at Ephesus. And as such, being an outreach of the church at Ephesus, it was one that he had never yet visited, though it might be a grandchild, as it were, of a church that he was involved in founding. But he has a burden for them, as well as every other church that had never seen him face to face, never seen his face in the flesh. Now, as far as wording it this way, why do you think Paul would do this? It's quite possible that Paul reminds them of his great love and concern for them because he now transitions into warning them against error. Why might he do this? Sometimes warnings can be offensive. 
we as human beings who still have the nature of the flesh don't like to be told what to do, do we? And a warning is just that. If you see a sign on a fence and it says, beware of dog, what are you going to do? You're going to beware of dog, right? It's a warning, but what is the statement, beware of dog? It's telling you what to do. What is it telling you? To beware of dog. If you saw a sign that said, beware of dog, and you heard snarling Dobermans, boxers, and pit bulls, would you look at that sign and and think, I'm not going to let them tell me what to do. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to show them. I'm going to do what I want to do no matter what. Well, fine then. Have at it. You're going to live with the consequences. Hope you're wearing one of them suits the police officers wear when they train attack dogs. Signs of warning are not there just to tell us what to do. They're there to help us. And Paul prefaces his remarks of warning to this church by reminding them this is a conflict I have. It's a burden I have for you and for Laodicea. He knows that warnings can be offensive, and so he begins by telling them, look, I love you. I'm concerned for you. Along those lines, sometimes those who warn against false teaching can be interpreted as mean. And sometimes those who warn against false teachers can be mean about the way that they say it. But as we warn and we try to set the record straight about what is true and what is false, we as the person who stands on the wall as a watchman need to remember this is Christ's bride. We need to be kind to her and loving to her because, after all, I wouldn't want someone to come into my house and yell at my wife. If someone came into my house and yelled at my wife, we'd have more than words. I need to be careful the way I talk to Jesus' bride, but at the same time, we sometimes misunderstand the warning as a personal problem with the person that's doing the false teaching. Jealousy, have you ever heard that? I think that preacher is just jealous of him. Well, no, maybe that person's really teaching something that's dangerous. And so Paul begins when he confronts the issue by telling them the burden that he has. By the way, as pastors, this is why we must always remain humble when we talk about these issues. The servant of the Lord must not what? Strive, but be humble, gentle, patient, long-suffering, Scripture describes, exhorts it in such a way because it should never become about personalities but ideas. In our day and age, it always becomes about personalities and emotion when it ought to simply be about the glory of God and the truth. Just a note on Laodicea, for them at Laodicea, I want you to notice this in chapter 4 and verse 15. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea. Verse 16, when this epistle is read among you, calls that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now that is one of those statements that people could just skip over, and it's just incidental details, but I want you to think about the practice that that institutes into the church. To read the Word of God. To read the epistles that Paul wrote to other churches. What is it that we're doing today? We're reading the Word of God. And we're expounding upon what the Word of God says to you. What did we already have at the close of our song service before our message? We had our time of Scripture reading. 
And as of next week, we'll come to the close of the longest chapter in all of the Bible, Psalm 119. We will have read that psalm it's in its entirety here at Flint River. When you get this epistle, read it. Go get the Laodiceans epistle, read it, and make this epistle be read there. How do you think they had a copy? Well, they copied it verbatim and they shared it. Actually, you can infer, I think you can directly observe how Scripture was transmitted and preserved for us even here today. Do you have an original of Paul's writings to the Colossians? No, you have a what? A copy. In fact, your copy is a translation in your language because this is how God has preserved and distributed His Word, disseminated it throughout all the world. Verse 2, that their hearts may be comforted being knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. And that word and in this particular passage carries the definition of even. And so, translating from the same word so many times, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, even the Father, even of Christ, God... Christ is God, the Father is God, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit. There are three that bear record in heaven, and these three are one. He writes with burden in his heart and conviction and conflict, and you can break it down into the following, that their hearts would be comforted, number one, that they would be knit together in love, number two, that they would have assurance of their salvation, number three, and then lastly, that they would understand and acknowledge the mystery of God. And I think we've already said quite a bit of that in today's message. Looking at these one at a time as we go through verse two together, first of all, Paul writes that their hearts would be comforted. Now, there are times in each of our lives when our hearts need to be comforted. You get a diagnosis that you're scared of. And, and I know personally that so many of you have gotten from time to time diagnoses that you are scared of because viruses and diseases, cancers, they are terrifying because they carry with them the threat of suffering and potentially death. This past week, we unexpectedly lost one of our family members in a car wreck down on I-20. My dad's youngest brother, who's only 53 years old, and his daughters, his daughters, their hearts are absolutely devastated. And so Monday, tomorrow, my dad will preach that funeral, and his goal will be to do what? To comfort their hearts. There are times that we all stand in need of comfort. What does Isaiah 40 say? Comfort ye, comfort ye by people. The gospel is a message. That is one of comfort to the people of God, that your warfare is accomplished, that your sins have been pardoned, that Christ has taken away your sin debt, and no greater comfort that you can ever experience, or there is no comfort rather, than you can experience, that you can experience than the comfort that you receive from the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does Paul begin a, an essay on the danger of false teaching with a prayer that these brethren would be comforted in heart. False teaching robs God's people of comfort. 
Now, we're comfortable this morning. It's some 68 degrees on a cool, crisp fall day, and you're sitting on padded pews. Praise God for, for foam, right? You know, I've gone to churches where they're, they're real old school, and, you know, a kid can fall through the cracks between the boards, but this is a comfortable place. But he, he doesn't have reference to physical comfort. It's not driving to church in a, in a car with a driver's seat, the equivalent of a lazy boy recliner, like a lot of us do on Sunday morning, he's talking about comfort in heart. Is your heart robbed of comfort? False teaching disturbs and disrupts the minds and hearts of believers. False teaching disrupts and disturbs. Some of you may have experienced that. You may have experienced it sitting on a pew in church. You may have experienced it visiting another denominational order. You may have experienced it turning on the Christian radio station. There are many ways that you can hear something false that disturbs the comfort of God's people. I love Psalm 23. He leads us beside what waters? Beside rapids? Beside still waters. Makes us to lie down in green pastures. Your relationship with Christ as a disciple ought to be one of still waters and green pastures. It presents to you, even back in the Old Testament, this concept of gentle and easy and peaceful. Praise God that our church has had years of lasting peace. Nothing is more disruptive to the fellowship of the church and the agenda of the church in a community and in the world than war and division, which is why heresy or schism must be immediately stamped out and dealt with as soon as it occurs. Like a gangrenous limb, it must be severed for the deliverance of the body. False doctrine disturbs and disrupts. It affects comfort. Remember, the context of this is false teaching. I'll give you a couple of ways. First of all, if you alter the doctrine of Christ, and, and remember, what we're reading about here is a threat to His identity and an exaltation of angels as objects of worship. So the Colossians are being threatened in their Christology. Josh and I were talking about it the other day. If you get Christology wrong, we're going to fight. Now, there are things we can disagree on. Parables. There, there are people in the world that believe the same gospel that we do, and yet they disagree on Christology. And I tell you what, I will be more inclined to have good friendship and some degree of fellowship with people we don't even agree with on the gospel than I will someone who has bad Christology. There are some groups that teach the same thing we do about election, but their pastors deny the eternal sonship of Christ. Do not darken my doorstep. Do not knock on my door. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Out. Be gone with you. Because you can't get Christology wrong. You can't get Christology wrong. If you alter the doctrine of Christ, listen to me. Salvation is not possible. If you alter the doctrine of Christ, His identity, Christology, salvation, not merely your thought on it, but its very existence is not possible. Because for us to be saved, God Himself had to take up human flesh as a man, live a perfect life, and as a man, die on the cross for us. You get any of those ingredients wrong, and you have no redemption. 
I'm not telling you if you don't believe it, you lose redemption or you'd never get it. I'm telling you redemption is not possible for anybody if what Scripture says about Christ is not true. Can you see how that would rob a child of God's comfort? Someone coming in saying, oh, Jesus really wasn't divine. You should worship angels instead. Salvation is not possible without Christ being who Christ was and is. What does Paul say to the Corinthians? If the dead rise not, then was Christ not raised? If Christ is not raised, then you're what? Yet in your sins. You mess up Christology, the incarnation, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension. You get any of those details wrong and suddenly the whole scheme of salvation falls apart. There's no salvation without Christ being exactly who He said He was. Now, in your mind, if someone gets those details wrong and you believe the false details, what happens in your mind? Suddenly salvation becomes uncertain. Your peace is robbed. Your heart is robbed of comfort. And you lose assurance. If you notice, the third thing that he mentions in this verse is what? Assurance. Number two, if you detract from grace, there is no salvation. What do I mean by that? If salvation is through anything other than the complete 100% free grace of God, then salvation is not possible. Because if it is of grace, it is no more of works, lest grace be no more grace. And if it's of work, it can be no more of grace, lest work is no more work. If you add anything to salvation, it ceases to be grace. And if it's by anything that we do... Well, as Paul said, if salvation could come through law, then it would have. But there can't be a law given that can take away sins because we are all guilty sinners. The only hope we have is the grace of God through our Savior Jesus Christ. And when that information is changed and the notion is changed, you lose the comfort that you have and the assurance that you have in Christ. Because as we're referring to theology and theory, if we alter salvation... It's not possible. And so, no wonder it robs God's people of their comfort and their joy and their peace. The only hope that we have is grace. And if you understand grace, you have assurance and peace with God. You have comfort. You, you lay down at night and you don't wonder, did I join the right church? Did I say the right prayer? Do I need to do it again? Do I need to say it again? Am I really good enough? Am I growing enough to prove to myself that I really have a hope in glory? Because there are people that struggle with that. No. If you understand grace, you understand that Jesus paid it all, and it is finished. And I don't have to worry at night about myself. I've got comfort because I know that I love Him, and I know that if I loved Him, He first loved me. And if He first loved me, He has paid all the debt of sin that I owe once for all, forever. Forever perfecting them that are sanctified. Comfort. False doctrine robs us of comfort. Next, Paul is burdened that their hearts would be knit together in love. Don't you love that expression, knit together in love? Now, this is an exhortation to us here at Flint River and to every church, as it was unto them. In the midst of his concern for their doctrinal purity, you have this concern that they would love one another. I did a series a few years ago on characteristics of a thriving church, but one of the characteristics that we highlighted and emphasized in that series was that in a church that is doing well in the world, so commonly I have observed that in the church, 
the best friends that each person has that makes up that church are other people in that church. Does that make sense? Did I get that through? Did I communicate it? So your best friends will not be the people that you play trumpet with on a, on a Thursday or a Tuesday or here lately between now and Christmas, just about every day. Your best friends are not the people you sing with or you, you go to car meets with or you hunt with. Your best friends ought to be the people that you go to church with because those are the people that you are going to spend eternity with. Now, this is an exhortation to all of us. We've spent two years of socially distancing and this and that and concern and tension and knots in the pit of our stomach and all the other mess that came with it. Anybody have PTSD? I mean, it's really been a mess of a few or of a couple of years. But let our hearts be knit together in Christian love. You sisters ever knit a blanket? What do you do when you knit? I love the choice of words here. It simply means join together. And many translations use this word knit because you can't find a better word for it in English. What do you do when you knit? Or you crochet, similarly to that. You take yarn and you, you weave it all together and you've got all these individual strands, maybe even of different colors and different texture, and you connect it together with knots, and I really have no idea because I look at it and I'm like, what voodoo is this that you do this with little needles and all of a sudden you've got a blanket after a few, a few hours. But you knit it together and the next thing you know you've got one blanket. Maybe again of different textures and colors and lengths and, and types of yarn or fabric, but you knit it and it's joined, it's connected. Our hearts ought to be knit together in love because you love Christ and you believe grace. That's a stronger bond that you can have with the people in this church no matter what you believe about any other thing in the world. That's a stronger bond than any other bond that you can have. And it ought to greatly unify us. You know, we all have different likes and dislikes and opinions on any sort of thing in the world. I mean, after all, it's football season, right? Yesterday I was in Starkville. I wore a maroon shirt just to be, you know, when in Rome. Uh, I don't know if you can compare Starkville to Rome. It, it may be compared to some other medieval cities. I don't know. Maybe I'm just going to stop talking. But I wore maroon. It's uh, football season and... You know how that goes. No, no matter what you like or dislike, your opinions on various things, what we have in Christ unites us more than anything in, in the world could unite us, so much so that nothing else in the world should ever divide us. There's a lot that I could say about that. John 13, 34, New Commandment, I give unto you that you love one another, Jesus says. John reiterates it in 1 John three eleven, and 2 John, love one another. Let your hearts be knit together in love. Next, Paul writes that they would have the full assurance of the understanding, full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Paul wants them to have the assurance of their salvation. Assurance of salvation is one of the most commonly spoken of or written of subjects in all of the New Testament. And I want you to notice, first of all, that as Paul introduces assurance, he describes it as the riches of the full assurance. Now, I love that he uses that. It was pointed out yesterday that these Bible writers would always compare it to something that the people around them knew 
We all know what it means to be rich and we all know what it means to be poor. And I think most of us here live somewhere nice and securely in the middle. I'm thankful to live in a country where we have a middle class and there aren't these class systems of rich and poor and, you know, princes and paupers. But we all understand what it means to be rich. Assurance of your salvation is a form of wealth. Wealth that the world can't take away. Treasures in heaven, as it were where moth and rust cannot corrupt. He compares it to financial wealth, but in in a spiritual sense. Now, as we introduce assurance to you, and I know that we have about five minutes remaining, and we'll be brief with it and probably steal another five minutes, but we have lunch here. You don't even have to go to get it. Just think about it. I don't have to drive to get food. There's food in there. Some people use the doctrine of assurance as a fear tool, and they miss the point of assurance. Biblical assurance is not so you walk around afraid that you don't have it. Biblical assurance is that you walk around comforted because you do have it. Anyone that uses assurance as a fear tool doesn't understand the doctrine of assurance. And yes, I'm talking to lordship salvationists because they try to scare God's people half to death that they're going to die and go to hell because they joined the wrong church, didn't do enough, aren't growing enough, X, Y, Z. And so everyone in church, you've got some of these guys that get famous literally for going to conferences and telling everyone there who decided to spend an entire Saturday hearing messages and singing praises that they're probably going to die and go to hell because they're really not repenting and believing enough. Poppycock. I won't have it. Baloney. Assurance is not a fear message. By definition, it's comfort. Because it's what? Assurance. No one, no one should use assurance to scare God's people. Rather, we exhort you to just cast your cares on Him for He cares for you. And in the process, your hearts are comforted. Assurance is a doctrine of comfort, not a doctrine of fear. I was talking about it with an elder yesterday. There are people who believe in the doctrines of grace that don't really love grace. And that's where all this lordship salvation stuff comes in. Let me tell you, I love grace. I love grace that is so great and strong and powerful and mighty that a sinful woman of the city like Mary could come in and wash Jesus' feet with her tears and a wicked king like Manasseh would be changed by the grace of God, the most wicked of all the kings that Judah ever had. And yet we read in 2 Chronicles that God changed him and saved him, and he knew that the Lord was God. We sing that song that this fountain that flows of salvation from Christ is so strong it could take away a Mary's or Manasseh's stains or sins more vile than they. That's grace. Paul said he was saved by grace as the chief of sinners. He was a genocidal persecutor of the church, and that's a man who was saved by God's grace. Anybody that tells you, well, you know what, they're really wicked people, that's not a person that God would save, doesn't understand their own sin or anything about God's grace. Sorry, I got up on my soapbox, but I'm passionate about that issue. Lordship salvation robs God's people of assurance. If you want to talk about that after service, we can, because I've got to move on. Paul writes that they would have assurance. The point of assurance is to be assured, not to scare God's people. They're to have peace. Assurance comes by faith, and it is not complicated. I'll give you three ways. Number one, 
Scripture gives us statements of identification of God's elect based upon their reception of the gospel, their outward reception, and their professed faith. When someone receives the message, it declares that they belong to God, or as Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.10, Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. When you believe the gospel, life and immortality in you is brought to light. You are identified as a child of God. You say, well, what about what they've done? What about what they do? What about what they struggle with? What about what they might get off into someday in terms of heresy? The Lord knoweth them that are His. The gospel brings life and immortality to light. Number two, thinking about assurance... The Bible is full of statements of assurance given to believers intended to comfort their trembling hearts. What's the greatest example of this in Scripture? John 3.16, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. When you read that, understand it's not a proposition, but a declaration. If you believe in Christ, you don't have anything to fear, but I'm not good enough. He is. I don't believe strong enough. He does. I've not been baptized by the right denomination. He was. I haven't kept the law. He did. And he died on the cross in your stead. And he tells you, if you believe, oh, if you believe, and Lord... Lord knows, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. But if you believe, if your heart is compelled to Christ, if it burns within you for Him, and beloved, you are a child of God, and nothing can take you away from your Savior. The reason you believe is because you're born of Him. You have passed from death unto life if you believe these words, according to John 5.24. And Scripture is full of these statements, not to scare you to death, but to encourage you, believer, to encourage you that you have everlasting life. And because you have everlasting life, you shall never what? You shall never come into condemnation because you're passed from death unto life. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Not fearful assurance, but blessed assurance. Number three, as we think about assurance, the doctrine of justification by faith is the doctrine of assurance, that is, the declaration of righteousness in the the conscience that gives us peace with God. Let me say that again so I'm not tongue-tied. The declaration of righteousness in the conscience that is by faith. In other words, when you believe in Him and the promises that He has given It declares on the level of the courtroom of your conscience that you belong to Him. That being justified by faith, Romans 5, 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you were declared righteous in God's courtroom upon the cross, but in your conscience, you lay hold on eternal life. You have peace with God. Sink your teeth into it and you feel... You feel to be right with Him simply by believing, not proving to yourself by the good works that you try to do. What a rat race is that? And it will never assure your conscience, but simply believing and trusting in Him does. You could summarize this entire doctrine of assurance from Psalm 51. In verse 12, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. David prays after his sin with Bathsheba, after he had lost 
the joy of salvation. We'll close with Colossians chapter 1 and verse 4. This I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Beguiled with the fear of losing your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. It's eternal. That's what eternal life means, and that's what God wants you to know, which is why He used the word. Let no man beguile you with fears of losing your salvation. Let no man beguile you to bondage of rigorous works in order to prove or secure your righteousness. That's bondage. It's a yoke, according to Peter in Acts chapter 15. Let no man beguile you with rigorous works to prove your salvation. In some systems, did I do it right? Do I need to pray it again? Do I need to ask him again? Do I need to do anything to keep it? Do I need to keep trying if it was wrong the first time? Don't let any man beguile you with that. Lastly, don't let any man beguile you with worry even about others. Remember, false doctrine threatens assurance because Jesus said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Let me tell you, there's a peace that passeth all understanding in the assurance that comforts the hearts of God's people in the real gospel of Christ. And to that I say, yea and amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this doctrine of assurance, Lord. We pray that these words have been palatable. We know at times that they were forceful. But Lord, there are times when God's ministers, the watchmen on the wall, need to stand and proclaim the word as it is to the best of their ability Father, we pray that none would ever beguile those of this congregation, for we know that false doctrine threatens their assurance, though, Lord, praise God, it can't threaten their identity in Christ, for you know those that are yours. Forgive us of our sins. Lead us into all truth and grace with a full assurance through the knowledge of the mysteries of God. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name, and we say amen.